chapter 30, 1 Samuel. Last time we looked at uh, David's time in the Philistine territory. He was working for the king of Gath, Achish. And Achish had been finding David to be very, very trustworthy and considered him to be a very loyal servant in his kingdom. And at the end of chapter 30, we found that uh, Achish was uh, planning on taking David along with him to attack the nation of Israel. And that put David in a very, very precarious position, really. He didn't really want to go against his own people, even though Saul was still after him and would have uh, wanted to still kill David. David had no intention of doing harm to his own people. He didn't want to do any harm to Saul because he considered Saul to be the Lord's anointed. And so it was a very difficult time for David. And, of course, we saw how God moved mightily in that situation once again on David's behalf and made a way for David to get out of that predicament that he found himself in. And as the story unfolds in chapter 30, we shift to a different scene with David still, but he's on his way back to the city that Achish had given to him, the city of Ziklag. And so that's where we are in the story of David, and we'll continue in chapter 31 tonight and uh, finish off the entire book with the end of Saul's life. So this is a very major turning point in the history of the nation of Israel as it unfolds in these last two chapters. So let's read together a portion of chapter 30, 1 Samuel, beginning with verse 1, where it says, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Now remember when David was in Gath and going on those raids that he went on, going after the Amalekites and a few others of the friends of the Philistines, he had told Achish that he was raiding the Jewish communities. And he killed every single one of those people that were in those friendly territories, friendly toward the Philistines. He left no one alive so that he wouldn't be found out. He didn't even keep the animals alive. He killed everything that was in those communities. And here we find the Amalekites have gathered together. They've apparently discovered that the Philistines are on their way to fight against Israel, and they're taking advantage of the vacancies in those communities in both the Philistine territory and in southern Judea. And so the Amalekites are still a very, very serious problem for the nation of Israel. You remember, back in several chapters prior to this, Samuel had told Saul to completely annihilate the Amalekite people. It was God's will for the Amalekites to be completely wiped off from the face of the earth because of what they had done to Israel during the wilderness journeyings. So many hundreds of years had passed, 
and yet that still hadn't been done. And Saul did not complete the job, and that's primarily the reason why God brought judgment against Saul, because he was disobedient to God's command in the destruction of the Amalekite people. So now the Amalekites are still a thorn in the side of the people of Israel, and especially now in David's situation, they have raided the city that David had been inhabiting at the uh, benefit that he had from serving this king of Gath, King Achish. And now he finds the city completely burned and the women and children have been taken alive. Thankfully, that was the way the Amalekites dealt with the people that were still in that city of Ziklag instead of killing them all as David had been doing to those Amalekite villages. But they were more kind to the people that were left behind than David had been. I find that rather interesting. But I also believe that it's most likely that the Amalekites, being a wandering people, would have an advantage in taking those women and children alive because they could sell them as slaves to Egypt, perhaps, or some of the other surrounding nations. So they were more interested in making a profit, I think, perhaps, in this particular case. That seems to be the the way that they operated. But now David finds himself going from the Philistine situation into another completely different and very, very precarious situation for him as a leader of that 600 men who are with him. They've traveled three days' journey from the battlefield up in the Valley of Jezreel, up in the territory of Israel known as the Valley of Megiddo, and he traveled with his men all the way down to that southern portion of Judea, And it was a very long journey of about 70 miles or so, and he did it in three days. So 20, 25 miles a day, it's a hard walk or run uh, all the way down through the territory back to his home that he had made for himself. And now he finds this tragedy. Ziklag has been burned. And it's a very, very sad thing for all of them. As we find out here in verse 3, it says, So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, perhaps many of you have, and I think perhaps most of us will experience that kind of sorrow sometime in our lives, either through the death of a loved one or some major tragedy that may take place, causing us to weep bitterly over the situation that we're having to deal with. It's certainly not an easy thing, but for all 600 men to find their children, their wives taken captive, their houses burned, all of their possessions gone, what a tragedy, what a difficult time this must have been. Very, very low time for David and his men. But it says in verse 4, or rather in verse 5, And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive also. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself 
in the Lord his God. This is the first mention since a couple of chapters before where God is brought to David's mind and he seeks the Lord in this situation. That's a very, very good thing for David to be doing. But take note of the fact that the situation that he's facing is precarious, as I said, primarily because the men were talking about stoning David because of what he had allowed to be done. Perhaps they shouldn't have all gone with David in the battle with the Philistines. Perhaps some of the men should have been left behind to protect the city, but they didn't. They all, 600 of them, had gone. And now they all have come back and found this situation and a terrible one for the people and also for David. And so, rightfully, it's exactly what everyone who is a servant of God should do. Whenever you face a situation that's beyond your control, beyond being able to find a way out to escape from this terrible tragedy, you go to God and you find God's answer and you find God's help and you find God's peace and you find God's comfort. That's what God loves to do for his people. And I'm convinced that God was just waiting for David to come to him, to cry out to him, because he wanted to answer David. He wanted to help David. He wanted to make sure that his king would be comforted in this very difficult time. So David goes, as he should have, to the Lord. And it tells us in verse 7, Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now remember the ephod was what the priest would carry and it was a pouch that they would be putting on the priest's breastplate and they would reach into the ephod where they would be, be presumed to be two stones, one known as the Thummim and the other as the Urim. And he'd pull one of those stones out and that would give the answer to the question that they would bring before the Lord. Always the high priest would be the one responsible for doing that. And so David has gone to his priest, Abiathar, and he has the ephod, and he inquires of the Lord with the ephod. And so in verse 8 it says, David inquired of the Lord, saying, two questions, shall I pursue this troop, the Amalekites, and shall I overtake them? He wants to know, first of all, should I go? And if I do, should I, will I be able to overtake them? And the Lord answered him. And he said, in the latter part of verse 8, the Lord answered and said, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. David must have been very pleased to hear that affirmation from God. However it came, it was a affirmation that he was so grateful for. It tells him that God is with him. It tells him, though, that even though that he had been in the Palestinian territory all of that time, that God hasn't forgotten his promise to David. It must have been a great sense of assurance to David, as it would be to any of us. When we hear a positive answer from God, it brings great assurance. It brings great peace and joy to our hearts when the answer is not only given in the affirmative, but when it is fulfilled in the doing of it. And so now David is going to move in that direction of pursuing the Amalekites. But the problem is he has no idea where, where they are, how many there are. He doesn't have any idea exactly 
what to do in order to move in that direction. But he does go trusting in the Lord that the Lord will provide the means for him to accomplish the task. All he had to do is believe God, and he does. God said, yes, you will, and so David does go. He apparently heads in the direction most likely to be where the Amalekites would have gone, heading toward Egypt, perhaps. So that's the direction that David begins to move. And in verse 9 it tells us, So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. Of the 600 men, 200 of them were just beat. They couldn't take another step and help David in the pursuit of the Amalekites. They would have done David no good at all. And David knew that. They had just been on a hard march for three solid days. These men were weary, and they could not come along to be an aid or help to David in this pursuit of the Amalekites. So David does a wise thing. He lets them stay. He lets them rest. And he lets the rest of the 400 who are with him continue with him on their pursuit. Verse 11 says, Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins so that when he had eaten, his strength came back to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. So this young Egyptian, they found him on their way. That is a coincidence, isn't it? No, it's no coincidence because God arranged it. Don't you remember? If with God, there is no coincidence. We, we repeat that often enough so that you ought to know that I use the term coincidence tongue-in-cheek a lot of times. And this is no coincidence. This is God. And he made it so that this young man somehow was left behind by the Amalekites and apparently left there to die. And that's exactly what we'll find out. He hadn't eaten for three days. So David and his men found this one man. He's an Egyptian, and he's a servant of an Amalekite, as we'll find out. It tells us in verse 13, Then David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. So that's how unfeeling the Amalekites were. Instead of helping this young man to overcome his illness or to uh, provide for him and, and let him stay with him, he was slowing them down apparently, and so he left him behind to die. Had no care for him. And yet David's and his men have found him, and they fed him, they gave him water, and they nourished him. He, brought the, he was brought back to a place where he could feel much stronger and was appreciating what David has already done for him. Now David is going to make some inquiries about what he has been doing in that region. But the man continues in, in verse 14 and says, we made an invasion of the southern area of the Carathites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb 
and we burned Ziklag with fire. I wonder what David must have thought when he heard those words. We burned Ziklag with fire. It must have been a very, very difficult thing for David to hold back his anger when he heard that which the Egyptians said. He's admitting that he was a partaker in the destruction of the city that David had been living in. But instead, David is able to keep his cool and he inquires further. And he says in verse 15, David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? And so he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this troop. So the man knew where they were headed and he is the perfect person for David to have been able to find in that wilderness area one man all alone, nearly dead himself, but revived by the kindness of David and his men and able now to give David all that he needs to know in order to pursue the Amalekites. This is an amazing thing as far as I'm concerned. I see God's hand in this and it's such a beautiful thing to read what God is now doing on behalf of his friend, David. Verse 16 says, And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So it wasn't just the city of Ziklag that they had captured or, or destroyed, remember. They had raided several places in the land around that territory, and they had a great deal of spoil. It must have been a very, very large group of Amalekites, by the way, as we'll find out in a few minutes. But keep in mind that they didn't have any reason to think that anyone was going to be coming after them. They believed David and his men were with the Philistines, and the Philistines had gone far north in their attack against Israel. So they felt that they were very safe. They went just a short distance from there, where they had raided all of those towns, and they were celebrating. They were having a party. Most of them perhaps were already quite inebriated. I can well imagine that would have been the typical way that they would be celebrating. And it tells us that they were dancing, they were drinking, and eating, and having a merry time. They didn't know David and his men were coming. And then David, it says in verse 17, attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Now that could have been, the twilight may refer to early morning or early evening. So it may have been about a 12-hour event or overnight, hard to say, one way or the other, David attacked. And it was a ferocious attack, and there was no mercy again to those Amalekites. Not a soul of them escaped, except for 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Now think of that. David and his men number 400 men. And it tells us here that none escaped, with the exception of 400 young men on camels. That must have meant that there was a very, very large contingency if they had taken all day long and perhaps longer than just one 12-hour period to annihilate those who were taken and David and his men slew them with the sword. 
successfully able to deliver all of those who were brought captive from Ziklag. It says in verse 18, So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. And again, not only that which was taken from Ziklag, but all of the other communities that they had raided as well. Huge amount of spoil taken by David. And we'll see that that's something that will be at David's advantage as we end the chapter tonight. Verse 20 says, Then David took all the flocks and herds that had been driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. Oh, really, it was God's spoil. But they attributed it to David. It's David's spoil. Now David, verse 21 says, came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they would not follow David, whom they had also made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. There must have been great joy in the camp at the return of the 400 men plus all that they had brought along with the women and children, the spoils that they had managed to take from the Amalekites. And the 200 men must have been rejoicing when they saw David and his uh, troops come back. What a joyous occasion it must have been for all of them. At least it should have been. But there's always some who like to spoil the celebration. And that's what we find taking place next. Verse 22 says, Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David, wait a minute, wicked and worthless men in David's mighty men of valor, the 600 men among them were wicked and worthless men? Well, they were considered that because they were angry instead of being willing to celebrate. They were very, very upset. These are still men that will continue to follow David, even though it calls them in the original Hebrew sons of Belial. It really is important to understand that these men are loyal men in David's army. They aren't really interested in doing David any harm, although at one point, as you saw, they were so despairing of things, the way the situation had come about in their discovery of Ziklag's being burned to the ground, they wanted the stone. Some of them did, apparently, but they were still with David. They went with David. They recaptured all of that which was taken from them, and much more. And they believed, those 400 men, at least some of them, that it belonged to them. All of the spoils should be distributed to those who went to the battle. And that's going to be their argument. All the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, the other 200 men, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. They didn't even want them to continue to be among the mighty men in David's army. They said, we want to see them take their wives and their children and depart. No more to be a part of what David was doing. But David didn't see it that way. And I'm really glad that David stood his ground, as we will see here next. It says in verse 23, But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. Who has preserved us and delivered us 
or rather delivered into our hand this troop that came against us. David is arguing for the 200 who were left behind. And he says, they will not, or for who will heed you in this matter? Verse 24. Who will answer you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. Wonderful decision that David is making on behalf of those who stayed behind. They were tired. They were worn out. They wouldn't have been much help with David. David had known that. They knew that. And I'm sure the other 400 men realized it too. But in their anger, they thought that they should not have had part in the distribution of the spoils. David saw otherwise. He said those who stayed with them stuff, those who stayed behind, who stayed with all of them, the uh, things that they had been carrying from their time with the Philistine army, all of the equipment, that was their job that David had assigned to them because they were too weak to go forward. At least they were able to do that much for David to protect the equipment, the stuff, if you will, in the King James. And so it was that David now has made this proclamation, those who are left behind will receive as much as those who went to the battle. No difference. They all will take part in the distribution of the spoils of the war. And so it was in verse 25, it tells us, that from that day forward, he made it a statue and an ordinance for Israel to this day. That's why I think it's so wonderful when we send missionaries out. Not all of us can go out into the missionary field. I know some of us would love to go to be doing some mission work, and that is maybe something that God might perhaps call some of us to do someday. Uh, those of us who have been part of our ministry here that have gone into missionary journeys have been blessed tremendously. But those of us who haven't been able to go have benefited in the spoils of those things that have been the result of their going into the missionary field. It applies in that way just as much as it applies in David's day with his having gone to battle and taken spoil and brought back and distributed to those who could not go. So that's a very important lesson that David's men are now learning and it's wisdom from God that David has imparted to them. And it's very, very good that he has done because now he's got all 600 men back in his camp together serving him and letting him be their leader once again. David is now in Israel and he has now become once again the future king of Israel. And there's no doubt in their minds that that is what's going to happen. But there's still an obstacle. Saul is still on the throne. But before we get to that, we'll finish this chapter with an interesting ending of this chapter as it relates to the spoils. See, David and his men didn't really keep it for themselves. We find next that David is going to be willing also to distribute those spoils to many different places in the southern territory of Judah. Well, in verse 26 it says, Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. 
David had made many friends in Judah during his many years running from Saul. Now the Ziphites were not his friends. They're not included in the distribution of this wealth that is now being distributed to the people in Judah. But there were many who did receive these gifts. And there's a list of some 11 various communities who are going to be uh, blessed by David in the distribution of the spoils from this battle with the Amalekites. So I'm going to try to read all of the names for you as we finish this chapter. In verse 27 it says, To those who are in Bethel, those who were in Mamoth of the south, those who were in Jatter, those who were in Aroer, those who were in Shifmoth, those who were in Eshtimoah, those who were in Rakal, those who were in the cities of the Jeremielites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Hormath, those who were in Korashan, those who were in Atak, those who were in Hebron, and those to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to roam. That is the end of chapter 30. It ends with a great victory and a restoration of David as the leader of his army, and the men who have been with him are solidly behind him. Now, chapter 31 in 1 Samuel ends with a terrible tragedy for the nation of Israel. They're going to lose their king. But keep in mind that this is not a surprise because we saw that Samuel appeared to Saul as he had gone to a witch of Endor to inquire, to find out what to do. Samuel had appeared to Saul and told Saul that he was going to die the very next day. Well, that day has come. So while David has been doing all of what he has been doing, Saul has been preparing for battle against the Philistines. And it doesn't end well for Saul. Unfortunately, nor does it end well for Jonathan, as we will see. Well, verse 1 of chapter 31 says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. Now Saul does have one other son who was not apparently in this battle. Perhaps he had stayed home taking care of the business of the ruling of the country while Saul was away in the battle. His name is Ishbosheth. He's going to be introduced to us in Second Samuel, if the Lord wills, we'll be getting to that in the next week or two. But Ishbosheth is Saul's only remaining heir to his throne. The dynasty of Saul could conceivably continue, but it's not God's will that it will. However, we find here the tragic end to Saul and also to his son Jonathan, killed in battle. Jonathan, remember he was such a righteous man. Why would God allow Jonathan to die? Couldn't he have saved Jonathan and allowed Jonathan to serve David? And it's possible that that might have been the case. But apparently, well, God always knows best. But it seems logical that if Jonathan had lived, he being the oldest, Israel would have wanted him to be king. And they would have wanted to put him on the throne. He may have resisted that. And there may have been bloodshed regardless. 
So perhaps it's a matter of God's mercy in that he might have spared Jonathan the terrible consequences of the results of David coming to the throne in his stead. It tells us more. It says in verse 3, The battle became fierce against Saul, giving the details about how Saul died. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. I'm pointing out the fact that Saul did indeed die, and he died that day, written by the author of 1 Samuel, that Saul was dead in the battlefield, and it was because he had fallen on his own sword after his armor-bearer would not thrust his sword through Saul to kill him. The armor-bearer was supposed to protect Saul. He couldn't bring himself to do that. And instead of doing that, he said, no, I cannot. And so Saul finished the job on his own, knowing that the Philistines were very near, that they would ultimately torture him. He took the easy road. And many people consider this to be an unforgivable act of suicide. Well, yes, it was indeed suicide. That's what suicide is when one takes his or her life. There are a few other suicides in scriptures. Uh, none of them, except for perhaps one, are recorded in regard to an individual that was in God's favor. Saul was out of God's favor. He had rejected God, and God had rejected him. Judas was another who had committed suicide in the New Testament. There's another one who we will uh, see in Second Samuel, whose name I forget, but there is another suicide, and he's also an evil man. The only other one that I'm aware of in the scripture that it, where suicide is actually recorded on uh, for us is in the death of Samson. And in his case, although he had not been a good judge, in the end, his final act was to bring the roof down of the place where he was held prisoner and several hundred Philistines died at his hand. And he asked the Lord specifically to forgive him and give him the strength to bring this tragedy against the Philistines, even though it was going to result in his life being lost. I don't really count that as a suicide, but some do. But the point of all of this is God doesn't endorse suicide. Obviously, it's not something that anyone should consider. God treasures life, and life is in the blood. And God does not consider one who would take his or her life as being something that they should have done. It's not in God's perfect will. 
What happens to people who do take their lives? Friends, that's between them and God. All we know is the body dies and the soul goes to be in eternity, with or without the Lord. But it's always God's decision. We should never make any rash decisions about the ending of anybody's life, whether it's by suicide or any other means. Who are we to know that in their last breath they may have made a confession of faith, they may have cried out to God? None of us can know that most of the time. So never ever make a judgment. All we can say is God's will is being done in that individual's death based on what that individual had done with God. It's up to them, not up to us. Well, Saul died. The reason I say all of this again is because in Second Samuel we'll read another story that will kind of bring a sense of conflict, a little bit of a conflicting story that will be given to us in Second Samuel. I won't go into any details, but we'll see that perhaps the next time or the time after, depending on how fast we can move through Second Samuel. But I'll save it for then. You can read ahead if you want to know the answer in advance. But here we know that Saul has been killed in battle. And verse 7 says, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three men fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall at Beth Shan, a trophy for the Philistines. In that day, remember, gods were territorial in the eyes of all of the Gentile peoples. And as far as the Philistines were concerned, when they defeated Saul, they defeated gods of Saul. So they took Saul's head and they put it in a place and they took his armor and they put it in a different place and they hung his body on the wall to demonstrate to all the passers-by in the land of Philistines, Saul is dead and his God has been defeated. So it was a great victory for them, for both the people of this, or the Philistines and also for their Philistine gods. Now it tells us in verse 11 that there was a group of people from Jabesh, Gilead, who heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. And this is an interesting story. I want to just end with these thoughts. Jabesh Gilead, why would they go from all across the territory of Judea on the eastern side, on the east of Jerusalem, come all the way to Philistine territory to take the body of Saul. That's what they do. It says, again, I'll read the rest of the chapter, beginning with verse 11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night, 
and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. These men were brave. They went into Philistine territory, took the body of Saul and of his sons, and brought the bodies back to Jabesh Gilead, and it says they burned them there. And it's our first mention, really, of the burning of corpses before burial, and it's very, very uncommon that that should take place. But before I get to that, I want to answer the question, why did the Jabesh Gilead men do this? Going all the way back to chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, before Saul actually became king, he was anointed by Samuel, remember, and Saul was kind of a man who was uh, not very convinced that he was ready for the job. And in Jabesh Gilead, there came a time when the Amorites, led by their king Nahash, had invaded the city of Jabesh Gilead, recorded for us in chapter 11 in 1 Samuel, where it tells us there that Nahash made an offer to the people in Jabesh Gilead. He had told them, if you are willing to pluck out your right eyes, then you can serve me, otherwise I will destroy you. Well, they cried out to God, and they sent people into the territory of Israel in the hopes that some Israelites might come to their aid. Well, Saul is the one who gathered up the army that came against Nahash to defeat Nahash and saved the people of Jabesh Gilead from such a terrible, terrible thing as this that would have come upon them at the hands of Nahash if Saul had not been valiant and bring the people of Israel. It's his first battle, and he won a great victory there. The people of Jabesh Gilead never forgot it. And I believe that's why they were so valiant in their attempt to help Saul in preserving the dignity of their king by getting his body off of the wall and brought back to Israel for burial. But I'm convinced that because his body had been defiled by the Philistines in such a way, they burned his body instead of just simply putting it into a limestone grave as was typically done. Now typically, in that area of the world, because of the temperatures as being uh, so terribly hot, it was very, very common for them to bury their dead in limestone caves, and after a couple of years, they would open the gravestone, and all that would be left would be bones, and they would take the bones, and they would put the bones into an ossuary, and they would then store the bones wherever. It's a much smaller uh, box, if you will, where just the bones alone are left. The flesh had all been completely dissolved. So, in the book of Genesis, we're told by God that eventually all mankind is going to die after, day, after Adam has sinned. And God has said to Adam, from dust you were made, to dust you shall return. So there's no real reason for anybody to find as being somewhat distasteful the thought of cremation. 
or any other form of burial. And there are options. We all have been exposed to both cremation and uh, regular uh, burial in a uh, box, a pine box, if you will, or whatever kind of box that you might want to buy. I don't really have a problem with cremation. In fact, it's one of the questions that I get quite often. Uh, is it right to cremate? And my answer has always been, I don't see any problem with it because it's just another way of maybe speeding up the process of returning to ashes because ultimately that's the end. From dust you came to dust, you shall return. It's just a body. You're not there. Why would anybody care? If I die, I want to be cremated. Now, if Sandy chooses, she'd rather go the other route because she doesn't want to take that to act. Well, it's going to cost her. When she, if she would have died before me, I don't think she wants me to go to a great deal of expense on her part. So I don't think she has a problem with my offering her body as a body that will be burned in a crematory. And it is much, much cheaper. I know that that's kind of chasing a rabbit tonight, but I just wanted to say that the people in Israel commonly did not do these things. But it's not out of God's will for anyone to pursue that. So that having been said, that's the end of Solomon's, or rather of Saul's life, and also of Jonathan's and his other two sons, um, whose names I cannot remember how to pronounce, I guess, Abinadab and Malkishua. But again, there's one more son left. And that one son is going to be a problem for David. Remember also Abner? Abner wasn't mentioned in this story. Abner's still alive. He survived this battle. And he also will play a major part, at least for a while, in the early times of David's reign. But we're going to find in 2 Samuel now the transition from Saul's dynasty coming to an end eventually and David's dynasty beginning. We just saw tonight how God moved on David's behalf to preserve his life and make it so that he could indeed be established as the king of Israel, knowing that Saul either had already died or would soon die in the battle against the Philistines. God's involved in all of this. God is moving through all of this. God is always in control. And in this present age, we still believe, we still teach, we still know that God is in control. His word is true. And he has spoken about these last days in great detail. And all of the things that we see happening in the world around us today are signs of the times. Keep in mind, Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be pestilences in various places. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines. But these are not the end, he said, yet. But they are like birth pangs. And like birth pangs, they're increasing with frequency and in intensity. Already this week, there have been several earthquakes, one in Japan, one in Iran, one in the Philippines, and there are more to come. There are small earthquakes being recorded all over the world. So earthquakes are definitely on the rise with greater frequency and in many cases, much greater intensities.
There are certainly wars and rumors of wars. The Ukrainian war is only one of several wars that have been going on and are going on even now. There's a war going on between Saudi Arabia and Yemen with the Houthi tribe. There's a battle continually going on in Syria with Israel and Iran. Although it's not considered a real war, it is kind of a war in a sense because Iran is moving troops, equipment into Syria for the sole purpose of invading Israel. And in Israel is retaliating preemptively to prevent Iran's buildup of forces. That will continue. And the tensions are growing daily. And we're finding many, many times that Iran attempts to do something and is not successful at it. Israel is wonderfully able to discover every move that Iran is trying to make, and that has been so frustrating for Iran. They're going to end up joining forces with Russia. I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. I don't know exactly how Turkey and Russia and Iran and Libya and Sudan are all going to come together, and they will because that's what Ezekiel tells us. But the stage is definitely being set. We're watching some very, very interesting times, difficult times for those who are having to go through those things, especially in the heat of those battles. There are many innocent people dying, women and children, elderly people, innocent, all of them, having to deal with bombs flying every night, cities being destroyed. It doesn't end well. I don't know yet how it's going to result in Russia coming against Israel. But I do suspect that it has something to do with this battle in Ukraine. Whether or not this battle in Ukraine expands into European territory and NATO countries, we're yet to see. Whether or not China decides to invade Taiwan is still on the horizon, possibly. Whether or not North Korea chooses to launch an ICBM over the United States and explode a nuclear device at an altitude high enough to create an EMP flash that will destroy our entire electric grid, that's yet to be seen. None of us knows, obviously, but God does. And God is in control. And it rains on the just as well as the unjust. Keep that in mind, people. We're not exempt from any danger that may come toward us as a people in this nation. So we just need to continue praying that God's will is done and that God will use us while we're still here as he used his people throughout their history. We can be an influence still in this world. And as long as we're still here, I believe God wants us to redeem the time. So let us be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.